What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to love our neighbors? How and why should I care about those around me, even my enemies? In our 10-part series titled Loving as We've Been Loved, we're exploring how God's great love for us is the foundation for both our loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Join us as we study the scriptures and see what this looks like in our everyday lives. What a wonderful summer day in Chicago. Uh, it's not in the least bit hot uh, today, thankfully. Um, okay, I'm not going to lie to you. It's really hot. Oh, oh, yeah. And I'm also very loud. So that's, that, the combination could be disastrous, unfortunately. Um, so this morning I was holding my uh, daughter and I was meeting a new friend, Kyle, from Memphis, Tennessee. Kyle, that's awesome. He's a, he's a good part of uh, Church and City. He's uh, moving here. And as I was talking to him, my daughter fell asleep in my hands. And I was like, that doesn't bode well for the, the sermon today. So if you guys fall asleep, it's okay. My daughter fell asleep first. So you, you're not going to phase me. You're not going to phase me at all. <clears throat> so the title of the preach today is Loving Hotly, Beyond Comfort and Culture. And that's partly because it's a little uncomfortable here today. Not, not too uncomfortable, not too uncomfortable, but a little bit, a little uncomfortable. <clears throat> but also to love passionately and deeply. And I would, I would caution you not to Google loving hotly. You know, we may, you may get yourself in trouble. And so do the right thing, okay? Um, let's go to churchinthecity.us first and then look up the sermon series, okay? That's a cautionary tale. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm not a homewrecker, okay? I'm not going to be one. Um, and I think in terms of starting to love hotly, I like to start with who Jesus is. The revelation of Jesus as, as Lord and as King. And, and when I look at Daniel 10 and Revelations 1, we see Jesus as a risen Lord before he became incarnate. And I realize that a lot of times when I think of Jesus, I think of baby Jesus, kind of like Ricky Bobby did in Talladega Nights, you know? I think about baby Jesus, and then I think about him growing up, and then he sacrificing on, on the cross for us. And, you know, that's an incredible sacrifice. But it's nice to also see him as risen Lord. And if we could read together, it's not going to be on the screen, uh, in Daniel 10, 5 through 9. <clears throat> Daniel says, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Upaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and I listened to him. I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. And that same picture, that, ter- that terrifying picture of Falling to the face, falling to the floor, feeling deathly pale, feeling like one who has died, is also in Revelation. It's eerily similar to what James saw. And if we look at Revelations 1, 12 through 18, James says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. 
His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I live. I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What an incredible picture of the Lord as he truly is. And as I remember that picture, it gives me more appreciation for what he left to come and become baby Jesus. And when the three wise men came from the east and came and and rejoiced with him and offered to him and, and celebrated him as a baby, I start to realize why they did that. Because he came across comfort. He came across culture. He came to meet us where we are. And sometimes I focus on those 33 years of his ministry as if that's, that's it. And I realize from the beginning of time to the end of time, that risen Lord is arisen indeed, and he will reign forever and ever. And James, who was, uh, I'm sorry, John, who was a self-described apostle that Jesus loved, who reclined at his, on his shoulder at the Last Supper, he fell face down as one who was dead. And I think sometimes I can be all too familiar with Jesus. I'm all too too comfortable with the idea of touchdown Jesus or, or Jesus who's like Paddington Bear who I just want to cuddle and I just want to be close to and I just want to hug. In, in, in heaven, when I see Jesus, I'm not going to be huggling, hugging, hugging, hugging him or cuddling him or whatever you want to call it. You know? I'm going to be face down and just reveling with the, the glory of who he is. And that revelation springs us to action. When Paul saw him on the road to Damascus, he saw a vision of Jesus and he he fell down and everyone with him was terrified and that launched his mission. And he had to go. He had to leave. He felt compelled to go because of that. Because people needed to know this risen Lord. I mean, this is the greatest truth of the whole universe. And he finally saw it. He was a witness himself. And we, are friends, are witnesses also. We have seen the Lord risen. And, and what does that do for us? Does that compel us into action? It did for Paul, it did for the disciples, and I'm hoping that today we can love hotly as well. We can catch some of that vision. And so what Paul did is he met with Barnabas, and he went with Mark. And Barnabas was from Cyprus, this island of Cyprus. He was, he was well known there. Barnabas was a, kind of a big deal in Cyprus, and he knew the magistrates, he knew the, the, the leaders of the time. And so they kind of honed their craft. They went from the east side of the island to the west, preaching the word, learning together, figuring this thing out, how to, how to preach the, the word in the, the synagogues. And then from there, they went to Pamphylia, now a Gentile city. And they went with Mark, Barnabas's cousin. And when they went there, Acts 15 talks about kind of the culture shock that Mark had. It says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed to uh, Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. We see in Acts 9 that Mark, he just, he kind of panicked or he just freaked out and he left and he just deserted them. He just up and left. And we don't hear about persecution that was there, but we just hear that they just arrived and the cultural change of going to a Gentile city was too much for this good Jewish boy who grew up in the synagogues, who was, who was used to the, the rabbinical law. Um, when I look back at Pamphylia, because I'm, well, I'm not an expert in Pamphylia culture and history, but, but Google is, evidently. And so I, I, I Googled it, and I looked, and, and um, 
they had this temple of Apollos, this huge temple of Apollos. They had theaters. Then they had uh, something called a gymnasium, in which a gymnasium is gymnas in Greek means naked. And it was just a place where a lot of naked men would just wrestle and, and, and do manly things. And that's, yeah, that's the gymnasium that we all went to, guys. And, and it makes me think of every time I go to the gym. And it's one of those male locker rooms, you know. It's, it's, it's a treacherous place, you know. And it seems like the older the guy is, and the, or the more overweight he is, the more confident he is in his body. And it's just, it's just incredible. And so I haven't been back to the gym. And, and it shows. And it shows. And, and that's why I tell my wife, I'm like, I'm like Mark. I can't, I can't handle this. I can't handle this. So, um, so that's, that's, I mean, that's what happened to Mark. But we see that that cultural exchange was too, it was too difficult. It was too hard. It was too hard. As some Australians say, too hard. Too hard. You know? And, and, that, um, and we see that what is culture? And we see that culture is the sum of our attitudes, our customs, our beliefs. That, that, that transferring that is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable being in, a, in an auditorium here that's a little hotter than, than I would like. You know, I, but it reminds me of how comfortable I normally am. I go from my air-conditioned house to my air-conditioned car to my air-conditioned job and back. And I just repeat. You know? And sometimes when I'm uncomfortable like this, it reminds me that it's okay to have my feathers ruffled a little bit. It's okay to mix it up. And if this is mixing it up, I think we're pretty good. I think we're, I think we're in a good spot. But we, we saw that the early church struggled with this, that they struggled with this idea of culture, that when they went to Gentile cities and people were coming uh, to know Christ, they started putting upon them the, the rules and the laws of being Jewish. They had to be circumcised. And for Timothy, he took one for the team. You know, he had to be circumcised as an adult so that he could preach the gospel. And I see the guys cringing here, you know, sliding in, in their seats a little bit. And, and so in Acts 15... They, the council came together and we were like, why are we making it so difficult for people? Let's, let's talk about this. And, and Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James, they came together and they said, is this what God asked us to do? And Peter passionately came forward and talked about the vision that he had. And he said, why are we putting this yoke on the Gentiles? We ourselves couldn't carry it. Our fathers and our, our ancestors couldn't carry this yoke. And now we're putting it on them? Why? Why are we doing this? This is not what Jesus called us to do. And, and Paul and Barnabas said, talked about how they would go into Gentile cities and the Holy Spirit would come in power upon them. And if the Holy Spirit was, was not going to abandon the Gentiles, why are they abandoning the Gentiles? And, and James spoke, uh, sat up and he talked about the prophecies of old where Jesus would be proclaimed in every nation, in every city, in every tongue, in every culture, would proclaim the name of Jesus. And he said, let us do that too. And then a new culture was formed. A new culture was created. New customs, new beliefs, and new ways of, of doing things. And we are a part of that culture. We are brothers and sisters in that culture, that we share that culture together. And it reminds me of some of the missionary trips that we've taken as a church. A few years ago, we went to Haiti after the earthquake. And I remember as we were, um, as we were thinking about going to Haiti, you know, I, was like, I was trembling a little bit because an earthquake just happened, and now there's not as much, much, much infrastructure. And now we're going to this place with less infrastructure during hurricane season. And I, wasn't feel, I didn't feel too comfortable with that. I also heard that there are not a lot of air conditioners down, down in Haiti. Um, there are a lot of bugs, and I, I hate bugs. As uh, Some of you may know that my wife is the, the spider killer in our household. And I, I'm, I, I say it proudly, okay? But, but yes, she is. And, and I thank her for that. I love her for that. Um, but we went to the land of spiders, you know, in the land of mosquitoes. And, and what I would do is we would go in, and, and after um, ministering, we had this little tent that had this mosquito net in it. And I called it my fortress of solitude. 
And every day I would go into my fortress of solitude and I would look at all the bugs staring at me with their eight eyes or six eyes or whatever, and I would, I would taunt them. I would just I would, I would laugh in their faces, you know, because I was in my fortress of solitude. And they would, they would try to sneak in as I, I came in, and no, I wasn't having that. You know, I wasn't sharing my fortress with anyone. <clears throat> but we realized that, that while we were there, that as we were worshiping with the Haitians, there came a moment where we were on the side of a mountain, and we were overlooking the city of Pétionville. And this is a hurricane season, and this big storm was approaching from the, from the sea. And we were just lifting our eyes up, praising God side by side together, brothers and sisters, Haitians and Americans, singing worship songs in Creole and English. And it was like there was no difference. And I had a picture of that Revelation picture where people from every tongue, every nation, were worshiping together. And I realized that we were one culture. We are one culture. We are one people. And as we were preaching, I was trembling a little bit. I, I think it was the Holy Spirit. She don't think it was the storm coming. But... <laughs> As the storm was coming, we just lifted our arms up and we were just praising God. And we're on the side of a mountain and it's a rainforest here. And the storm just stopped. And it rained in front of us, but not over us. And we had open heavens above us. And I'm not a meteorologist. You know, I'm not Tom Skilling. I don't know, I don't know all the fancy things he knows, you know. But all I know is, is that it stopped and we were worshiping and we praised our Jesus. We praised our God. And we, were th- and we, we had as much time as we needed until we, we called it a day. And those moments... Those are moments that echo in eternity. Those are moments that I'll always remember. And just getting past my little bit of discomfort, if I could share in that moment, wow, that's like, that's like gold refined in a fire. That's something that leads to more intimacy and closeness with Jesus. And I would gladly do it again, gladly. And I count it a privilege to have done it in the first place, that Jesus would allow me to do that. And Paul saw some of that. And as he was going and planning church and after church and church systematically, he then, in his sec- in his, later in his life, planted church in Ephesus. And from there, the seven Revelation churches happened. And Ephesus was a base church. And it was interesting. It wasn't too dis- dissimilar to Chicago. It was at a deep-sea port, and it was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. People from all over the empire came to Ephesus. And Paul just had an amphitheater, and he just preached it. He just kept going, and people from all over the world came there, heard the message, and went back and formed house churches. And we know that this is how the church in Colossae started. There was a man named Epaphras that heard the, the message, planted a house church, and then there were the three cities around there, um, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and, the, uh, and, and uh, Epaphras would go back and forth between the cities, and then Mark would go there too. And we see in Colossians 4, 10 through 16, Paul says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom, and they have proved a comfort to me. How incredible is it that Paul didn't want anything to do with Mark, and now he's sending Mark and saying, hey, take good care of him. He's great. He's, he's an incredible part. Barnabas was right. Barnabas was right early on. And, and it, it's really encouraging to me to know that even when we screw up early on, even when we get a little uncomfortable and panic and just flee, that there's still that call and destiny over our lives. And Mark stepped into that call and destiny, and he ran into the things of God. And we know that the gospel of Mark was the first gospel written, and it was a gospel primarily to Gentiles. And the, the, the good Jewish boy that was so afraid of Gentiles was on fire to preach the word to Gentiles later in his life. He stepped into that destiny and calling over his life, and there was a second chance. And I feel today that as we first knew Jesus, maybe there was a passion that, that we had, 
that kindling in our hearts to go into the nations, to go just to share with our friends and our neighbors and down the streets about who this Jesus is that just revolutionized our life. And then maybe we became a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more easy in our routine, and we think back as more of a distant memory about that feeling. I would encourage us to rekindle that again, and hopefully today will be that day that we glorify his name throughout the world as we prayed earlier today, as we worshiped God earlier today. And then later in uh, Colossians 4.10, he says, Epaphras, who is one of us and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Heropolis. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in their house. After this letter is read to you, see to it that it is also read in the church of Laodiceans. And... And that in turn, you read the letter I wrote them in Laodicea. You know, I find that incredible because the churches were going back and forth. But I've never read a a letter to the church in Laodicea. But that was one of his epistles. And I I had to look it up. I was like, what happened to this letter? And evidently, it was just lost. It was, you know, people kind of tried to fill in the letter. They took bits and pieces of Paul's other epistles and put it into a letter and then the church was like, no, this is clearly false, and, and rejected it. But the church in Laodicea didn't preserve Paul's letter to them. I mean, they were that nonchalant that we don't have the benefit of hearing what Paul had to say, unfortunately. And I, I was thinking a lot about uh, that, and I was looking for a metaphor of that. And I don't know if any of you guys have heard of Cecil the Lion over this last couple of weeks. I've heard a lot about Cecil the Lion. And, and however you feel about Cecil... I think we can all agree that Cecil is a terrible lion name. It's, it's horrible. It's just a terrible lion name. It, it doesn't, I've, I've never met one tough lion that's named Cecil. And, and for good measure, I mean, it's maybe a cartoon lion, but not a wild lion. You know? and, and I just thought about how we emasculate lions. We put them in zoos, and, and when they're in a zoo, they become all too familiar with us. You know, we give them three square meals a day, and they, they're like pets. You know, they, they have air conditioning you know, when it's too hot, we keep them indoors. When it's too cold, we keep them indoors. They pace back and forth in their cages. They pull out their fur sometimes because there's nothing to do. And, I mean, it's a pretty good gig with their three square meals, but that's not what they were created to do. And then I think about lions in the wild. And a few years ago, um, my wife is from South Africa, and when I visited her, we had the choice, chance to go on safari. And we saw real lions on the, on the hunt and on the savanna. And there is this elegance among them this dignity to what they do. And it's, it's a hard life. It's not easy, but they're, they're charging forward, and there's, there's this, this incredible strength that they have. And um, it was just such a contrast of going to Lincoln Park Zoo and looking at the lions and then going to the Kruger National Park and looking at the lions. And, and I thought about us, and what if we're like those caged lions some days? And I feel like that. I feel like that when I'm just going 9 to 5 and just going through the motions and and, you know, I have my quiet time, and that's great and all, but then I just go to work, and I come back, and, and, and then maybe I'm pacing back and forth at home. Maybe I'm pulling out my fur a little bit, you know? And, I'm just, and, and maybe that's part of the why. And when I've gone on these trips to Haiti or Nepal or, or down the streets or street evangelism, I feel like that wild lion a little bit. I feel like I'm doing what I was called to do, what I was created to do, that, that destiny upon myself. And, and, um, and, and so... But don't take it from me, right? Let's take it from Jesus, okay? So, so we saw that there were those seven, seven churches in uh, Revelations, right, that were started from the church in Ephesus. And let's look at Revelations. And we see in Revelations 2, 2 through 7, 
Jesus, that same Jesus with eyes like blazing fire, with skin burning bronze, with, uh, uh, with hair like white wool, with like, face like lightning, is now talking to, to John, who is cowering. And he talks to him about the church in Ephesus. Who is leading the church in Ephesus at the time? Why is John? John is taken over for Paul, right? So he's talking directly to John about his, the church that he leads. And he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot tolerate bear, uh, to bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat at the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I, I just shudder when I hear that. I just think about the time when I first met Jesus, and he was my first love. And I would do anything. I would just run through a wall. I would go anywhere for him. And then I became a little all too familiar with Jesus. And touchdown Jesus became just a part of my routine, a part of my day. And he wasn't that risen Lord, that King of Kings, that, that first and last, that Alpha and Omega that he truly is. And, and when I read that and I have a quiet time and I come back to that place, I'm also, what also comes back is that compelling, that compulsion, that great commission to go forth, to share with my friends, to share with my brothers and sisters, to encourage the, 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 the family here, our new culture, in the things of God. And I had to look into the, the Nicolaitans. Who are these Nicolaitans that, that their ways got hated? Now, God didn't hate the Nicolaitans. He hated their ways. And what we see with the Nicolaitans were they were descendants of the teaching of Nicholas, who was one of the seven of the deacons. We know about the first deacon, uh, St. Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church. One of the sevens was Nicholas, and he was of pagan origin, and he came to uh, faith. But we can read here that there was a teaching that came forth where he was... He reconciled pagan traditions with Christian traditions, and they ate a food that was offered to the, the idols. They engaged in sexual immorality, which the church said blatantly, we were not to do this. And we can see J- Jesus hates that compromise with that culture. And it started getting me thinking, gosh, what if I compromise with my culture? Now, I love America, you know, USA, as Steve chanted earlier, and all of that stuff, or us A, you know, if you're from Canada. And... And, I mean, I, lo- I love that. I love my country. I love the people and things like that. But, but what, about, what about the culture are we called to be countercultural in? You know, we're not called to just accept blindly everything in the culture because we have a new culture that's here, you know? And where do we take a stand and where do we make peace? Um, but it, it really got me thinking about what those things are. And I'm not here to preach at you about what those things are. But, you know, pray about it and, and Jesus will tell you. And then we look at the church of um, Pergamum. And it says that of you, there are people who follow the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Another shudder. And, and the teachings of Balaam. And I was like, they, there are people in the church that are off, eating food offered to idols and engaging sexual immorality. And that's, that's true of, of the churches today. That we have compromised and we do things that we're not supposed to do. And I don't want to be facing Jesus one day and saying, to answering for that, and then we see the third church, or the third church I'm going to talk about. 
and the Revelations Church in 3:15 and 21. And this is the church of Laodicea, the church that lost Paul's 15th epistle. I'm, I clearly haven't gotten over it. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing well forgiving this church about this. But, but Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold, or cold nor hot. Would that you either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And if you look at the original Greek, and, and Google allows us to do that, we see that some translations say that it's like I will vomit you out of my mouth. <clears throat> For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those who I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand and knock at the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Friends, we're called to be more than conquerors. And I think that sometimes the church in America has been blessed so much with all kinds of riches, all kinds of, of treasures, and we've become a little too comfortable with that. I know that's true for me. And I've been lukewarm in my air-conditioned home, in my air-conditioned car, and I feel like I have no needs. But yet, I am wretched and poor and pitiable, if I believe that. But I know that, that Jesus here says that we can buy gold refined in the fire, that we can buy white linens that we're not naked anymore. There are ways of doing that. Now, we're not talking, I want to be clear, about salvation. Anyone who believes in Jesus is saved. But that doesn't mean we're not coming there with much to offer. And I yearn for, to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. I desire it. I desire to go there with some legacy, some destiny, that, fulfilling some of the destiny that God has called over my life. And I yearn for that for each of you, to step into the call of God upon your life. And I know it's a great call, an incredible call. It is wonderful. And, and God offers us the opportunity to buy gold refined uh, uh, in, in the fire. And that we are called to be more than conquerors. And to those who conquer, to sit on his throne, just as he sits on his father's throne. So I want to talk about some practical steps, right? Because if we're not practical, then, you know, this is maybe just a, a passionate feeling that we have. And some of those practical steps, is, as a church, we've said, let's go into the nations. Let's rally together and to go. And next year, we're planning a trip to Mexico and likely Nepal. Um, and we've already gone to Mexico several times and Nepal, and it's been incredible, right, to see what God is doing. And we've talked briefly before about how after the earthquake in Nepal, that the Nepalese church partnering with us has gone into cities and villages that have never heard the gospel, villages that the government has not been able to get into, and they've just found ways of doing that. God has opened up doors to stretch every dollar and to, with ingenuity, just get, get, step into different, different places that have never heard. And what an incredible thing that is to partner in that way, to be a part of that. And, and we want more. We want more. We want to partner in more ways. And also our neighborhoods. And, and Steve talked about Prayer Chicago and how September 17th, that Thursday night, there's this opportunity for churches all over the city to come together and pray for our city, to pray for our neighborhoods, to walk the streets, to, to, to step out and to reclaim the city. The city that is like Ephesus, this second city, the city where people from all over the world come here, and who's to say that we can't affect Saudi Arabia and South Africa 
and India and China and Western Europe just by preaching to people in the streets that have come here from those cities and Canada, with people who have come here from Canada, you know? I'm not forgetting about you, Canada. There's, we have much love for Canada over here, too. <clears throat> and, um, and, and, and there have been opportunities to do street evangelism in, in the city. And, and we know that even in church in the city, we've had people from Saudi Arabia hear the word. We've had people from Lebanon, from South America, from Africa, Nigeria, from Singapore, from China that have come here. And they've gone back to their countries and shared that word, shared that, and been bold about their faith. And what an incredible, incredible privilege that is to be like the Ephesian church in that way. But let's remember our first love, friends. Let's do it from that place. Let's not do it because it's just a good church program, because we have, it's a good thing to do. Let's do it because that's the call of our Savior, call of our Father. Now, when you hear that call, is it a cry or is it a battle cry? When we hear that call, what happens in our hearts? Does our heart open up to that? Do we, does it resonate in us as something that we, we, uh, we've been called to do? And if it doesn't, I, I challenge you to pray and to ask God to open your hearts, to, to, to catch some of that vision that he clearly has called his church to do. And we also look at church planting. We know that there's a church planted in Columbus, Ohio, um, with Dave and Kathy Swart, and it's, it's incredi- going incredibly well. And, and now Christian and Sue are, are planting into Pasadena, and into L.A., and the beaches need to hear about Jesus. And, and we're excited for that. And, we're, and we know that they're leaving their church community. They're leaving their comfort. That they're going across comfort, across culture. It is, it is a different culture, Chicago and L.A. It's very different. And, but they're going into that new context. And they're taking a step of faith. And, and we're praying that God would go with them and cr- prepare a way for them and empower them for the task at hand. But they're doing that because of a vision of Jesus. They're not doing that for personal glory. They're doing that because of the risen king. And we as a church are sending them. We are partnering with them. And we have an incredible part of that heritage that they have. We can pray for them. We have friendships with them. We can resource them. And I want to end with just this quote from Winston Churchill. And in the height of World War II, as the Nazis were bombing London and it was decimated, Hitler thought that the, their will would be broken, that if he, he just kept, kept uh, bombing them. But, but it wasn't. And what Winston Churchill said is, These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest days our history has ever lived. And we must thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our stations, to to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. And I would say that these days are also great, my friends. That these days will be a part of being memorable in the history of our race, of our culture, of our new culture that they will echo in eternity, and one day we will stand before the throne or fall before the throne and hear about the, the people that came to Christ in Haiti, in Chicago, in Englewood, in Wicker Park, in Humboldt Park, in the north side, in the west side, in the south side. We will hear about the gospel going from the mountains to the plains, to the cities and the villages. Towns will hear of Jesus, that his light would rise upon the islands, the forests, and all throughout the, the uh, nations that people would hear of who Jesus is and that he is a risen Lord. And that's the picture we have in Isaiah 42 of how people would shout from the mountaintops of who God is, that all the Gentile nations would hear. And we, according to our stations, have the privilege of partnering in that, of being a part of that legacy and what God is doing right now in our, our, our world. And so if we can end and we can just pray into that prayer, Lord, I just ask and thank you, Father, for this privilege 
this incredible privilege that we have together as brothers and as sisters, part of your culture, to be a part of what you are doing in advancing your kingdom, Father. And we ask that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, Father. That you would equip us for this task. That your anointing would flow. That we don't go as individuals, Lord, but we go, we were sent by you as emissaries of your kingdom, Father. That we would be filled with the joy of our first love to go and share the good news about how that love has transformed our lives. That we would share of the nations that have come to Chicago, Lord, that they would go back and churches would be planted. And that, that picture of Ephesians, Lord, where all of Asia Minor has heard your word, would be a picture for this whole world, Father. That as our world is becoming closer, that all, every corner of this world, Father, would hear about Jesus reigned and glorified and what you have done coming to us, Father, dying for us, being beaten beyond recognition for us, Father, and now risen on your throne and allowing us to be a part of that, Lord. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you love us, Father, so wonderfully and sweetly, Lord. And we just ask, Father, that you would allow us to partner with what you are doing in this world and the one to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this Church in the City podcast. For more information about our church or to listen to other messages, visit churchinthecity.us.